right, everyone. Hello and welcome to this, the second episode of By the Numbers. I'm James Carlson, and I'm joined once again by Alex McNabb. How are you doing, Alex? Hey, how's it going? Fantastic. Uh, I'm really excited about the topic today. This is uh, this is one of the sort of areas we really bonded over when we first started talking, probably because we're <laughs> we're some of the few people who actually come from like genuinely out of the way rural areas in our movement. Yeah. yeah so it's uh, it's sure. it's it's nice to care about. <laughs> it's nice to you know have someone else who cares about this this stuff. Yeah, well, I, I think your family is in the farming industry, or at least to some degree was affiliated with it. Uh, my grandparents were tobacco farmers. Oh yeah, I have uh, I have immediate ancestors who were. They did corn. Obviously, the Midwest, everyone does corn, dairy. I grew up in the area. I mean, it was just a fact of life. You get stuck behind tractors <laughs> where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it, uh, it's such a distinct character and way of living. You just don't get it anywhere else. But it's a character and a way of living that uh, it's dying in the United States. That was what your article Catabolization Part 1, The American Farmer, was all about over on Dissident Mag. Uh, I remember we talked about it for a really long time before you finally put this article together and really kind of brought all of these thoughts together. Right, right. Yeah, I, uh, I've been wanting to write something about the decline of farming because you said it was dying. I think it's effectively dead. Uh, it's something like, what, 2% of the population is engaged in farming now? Yeah, like it's like 2.2 million people. Yeah. Which is just incredible considering, I mean, even just the rural population of America is like 39 million people, but only 2.2 million of those people are actually engaged in what was, you know, until the 1950s, the most fundamental foundational industry of the American economy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know rates at one point were as high as 80% of the population was engaged in farming. Which is probably a little bit on the high side, but for a long period of time, it was close to 40 to 50%. Right. Well, uh, that's something I want to get into later is how it, it sort of leveled out after the ni- into the 1930s and the 40s in the 50s. And then all of a sudden, it started falling off a cliff again. Mm-hmm. And that, that could only be policy-induced. So, right. Uh, well, definitely... We'll definitely get into that, but we're going to go, I think, along with your article here, which was fantastically written. And, why, thank, uh, why, thank you, James. <laughs> yeah. No. Try. Uh, so I guess uh, I'll read, and you can kind of take off the commentary after each paragraph. So, <clears throat> catabolization is defined biologically as dismantling something complex like a protein into simpler units to provide an energy source and is contrasted against assembling simpler substrates into complex molecules and structures via anabolism. We got the scientific terminology in here. John Michael Greer takes this general idea and applies it to, excuse me, economic and sociological progress. I'm not here to make a value judgment on whether Greer or by extension, Joseph Tainter, Joseph Tainter have fully comprehensive accounts of the rise and fall of a complex of complex civilizations. But the idea of a catabolism is useful for explicating what happened to a historical social category in the United States and is currently happening to another one today. 
think of the idea as just a tool of comprehension. So for my own personal curiosity, I don't recognize the name Joseph Tainter. Who is that? Uh, Joseph Tainter talks a lot about the, the the fall of complex civilizations. Uh, he has a, you can find his, a pretty good video by him on YouTube that addresses that very specific thing. Um, he has theories about diminishing returns and in investments in complexity and how this creates sort of a an overhead cost that becomes too much for the system to support. And Greer has something kind of similar to that. And in, in, bo in both cases, yeah, there's, there's the idea that what might have been useful for expanding a society at one point eventually becomes an ineffective strategy in the long run. Like constantly trying to innovate and add more complex controls to a system eventually overburdens it, essentially, is, is what they tend to think. Okay, I just thought this... the, I, yeah, I just thought the idea of cannibalism was kind of useful for understanding what to me seemed like a fairly complex system that was broken down and simplified and kind of torn to pieces to be used for kind of a short-term goal. Yes, yeah, so it's fascinating you mention efficiencies because way later in the article you mentioned Earl Butts, the former Secretary of Agriculture, mm -hmm. and I was looking into his background and I even think I put it in the show notes. You know, he Secretary of Agriculture, he was the vice president of the American Agricultural Economics Association, which later became the American Society of Farm Managers and Rural Appraisers. But he wasn't a farmer. He wasn't he never worked in agriculture. He was he was an academic. These organizations were were composed of academics, and their whole thing was about creating a market-oriented, efficiencies-based agricultural system that had nothing to do with you know an actual way of life. Yeah, yeah, that was the buzzword. Market-oriented was the phrase that really stuck out to me. Yeah, uh, these people with econ degrees, you know, as I say, as someone who has studied economics. Yeah, they were they were wanting to do more uh, exports. They want to grab the export market, right? And when you when you reorient for exports, the whole you ha your only option is to drive prices down to be competitive with everyone else. Mm -hmm. Yep. So they they created it. They created an agricultural system with as few complexities as possible to drive down prices. Yeah, because to to me, like it's important to understand that like the that that rural agrarian lifestyle of, of the human farmer, maybe overly romanticized in some cases, but it's it's important to understand that that was a complex social ecosystem, full of various relationships on a granular level, uh, full of vibrant towns that had you know lots of complex social interactions, and all of that stuff was just utterly deconstructed. It was erased. Yeah. Absolutely. In fact, uh, my one of the first notes that I put in the show prep notes was about corporate consolidation. All of the you know seed companies being closed and bought up by like Bayer, who used to be the evil Monsanto. They kind of they rebranded through a, through a purchase. Dupont, you know, they own almost eighty percent of uh, soybean intellectual property, corn. Slaughterhouses have been consolidated by companies like Hormel and Tyson, who who not only control the slaughter, but they they're, they're, they do everything from picking the animal up to butchering it to advertising it to retailing it, and it has just completely gutted the rural economy. All of these 
yeah, there's never been a time in human history where you've had that degree of vertical integration. Ever. <laughs> it's wild. No, a- absolutely not. You know, the farmers, they enter these uh, long-term fixed-rate contracts where the company determines the feed you use. In the case of Tyson, they give the farmer the chickens, like the <laughs> the eggs to incubate and hatch and give them these chickens. They determine the price. They determine the way the buildings look. Then they pay you whatever, you know, kind of small stipend for taking care of these animals. I mean, it's a completely, it is a nearly entirely vertically integrated system. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, (laughs) It's a system, it's a system worked by men who are almost 60 years old on average. Yeah, which kind of makes me wonder uh, what, 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 but even if you wanted to return to an, an older uh, arrangement, you don't really have the intellectual capital necessary to do that because those traditions and that knowledge has not been passed down because there just wasn't anyone working in that industry for so long. It's it's just only in the handful in, in a, a handful of hands basically. You know, this reminds me of a statement in your article about how your family had. Tobacco farmers, you know, you say, to quote my own family on my mother's side, were small-scale tobacco farmers from North Carolina in the bygone days when you could still take your crop to market. Now, I can't imagine you actually remember how to be a tobacco farmer. So I wasn't raised as a tobacco farmer, and my parents were. They they barn tobacco. They did all of that. And in, in those days, you would take your your tobacco harvest to a market and it would be bid on and it was a big deal uh particularly in that part of north carolina which would have been fairmont they had a big tobacco auction there every year and this was sort of like the center of the local economy and that of course is basically gone now right the knowledge is gone the market is gone the actual farms are gone a whole local ecosystem that tied together families and businesses a way of life essentially is destroyed yeah. and that's kind of the core feature of I th- of this episode here is that you know I don't want to paint the human farmer as the ideal lifestyle I think you can make arguments one way or another but it is a it is a necessary foundational piece of a civilization yeah yeah exactly now gone yeah yeah and of course uh, like you're talking about the the contracts with Tyson and with tobacco farming is the the auctions were replaced in favor of a contract system. So you've got to sign on and agree to produce so much of a crop for a buyer at the start of the season, and there is no auction. All of all of these these developments have really just been crushing people trying to do this on a small scale. And to to me, like that small scale, human style, uh, agrarian lifestyle is it's an essential building block if you want to have like an actual prospering civilization because that's where all of your children tend to come from like your your birth rates tend to be out there in the rural areas on these small farms and you can you can potentially siphon some of those kids off and send them to cities and in an industry but you can't just can't really just eat your seed corn as it were right like you've got to preserve that so that you're still producing more people and having the ability to to use them for things like the military or for industry or or what have you or intellectual pursuits yeah, I was just watching a video from FarmAid on YouTube right before we started the show, so it didn't make it into the show notes, but this FarmAid video was saying it showed a map of how almost every agricultural county in Iowa, families that are actively engaged in farming have 
three to four children. Mm-hmm. Even, yep. even though children aren't, you know, children aren't out there with a hoe and a wagon anymore, they're still sort of a fundamental part of that type of society. Yep, yep. Uh, my, my grandparents were tobacco farmers. They had exactly four children. Yeah, my grandmother, they, they actually, her dad had a strawberry farm. She's one of 11. Oh, was one of 11. Baby, she was just a boomer. <laughs> but 11. I can't, I can't even imagine that today. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and like I was saying, like they, they, they have a local uh, social life and ecosystem, the churches and stores, and at least they used to. And they're all in type of community. And by doing this vertical integration where all of the farmland is bought up and concentrated, you, you erase the entire community. It's not just some farm jobs or something abstract like that. It's like you are literally erasing an entire community of people. Because hey, you've, you've erased, and, and I have a bunch of sources that people can scroll down and read in the video description. You erase transport jobs, you know, seed distribution companies, genomic companies, animal transport, processing, you know, local abattoirs are basically a thing of the past in, in U- the U.S. and in Europe. They All of this in, stuff has yeah. been wiped out. I don't want to go on too much of digression, but they did that in the U.K. as they intentionally tore apart that industry. Yeah, that was, the, that was right after the European Union, or the United Kingdom joined the European Union. The European Union passed a bunch of reforms that were specifically designed to shut down small independent abattoirs in favor of massive animal processing plants they shut down like 1100 in britain but the same thing happened to you in the united states but instead of using state regulation they deregulated and allowed it to monopolize which is effectively kind of the same sort of thing yes it's basically (laughs) the same thing you're just you're there are multiple ways to set policies to destroy to destroy the to destroy an economy which reminds me, to continue reading it, your, your article here, at some point, nations engage in empire-building foreign wars in various types of expansion, inevitably, inevitably turn to the farming class as a source of human capital. This is a risky gambit long-term, as farming is traditionally very labor-intensive, and campaigns can lead to the loss of, to the loss of neglected fields. This is precisely what happened to Roman legionaries. After participating in lengthy campaigns abroad, Many return to farms either run ruined by a lack of maintenance or foreign legions. Simultaneously, the Roman economy increasingly concentrated into farms, into large farm estates administered by slave labor. Even more interestingly, the crops grown on these latifundia, am I saying that correctly? I believe that sounds about right. Were selected based more on their economic and trade viability than on immediate usefulness. And Rome itself relied on grains imported from outlying provinces for basic foodstuffs. Rome essentially catabolized farmers for temporary gains in their capacity for conquest. Reminds me of a certain country in the modern era. Right, right. One that also had slave labor uh, and used farmers for to, to send abroad into various world wars, which that's this is the part I thought was really interesting, is to look at the pattern over time and what happened in terms of the Farming is an occupation, and how this differed between the First World War and the Second World War. 
and I, I think we talked about this quite a bit about about this difference because you would expect generally that if you've got a war and you're taking farmers and you're sending them off to fight or you're sending their sons off to fight, you'll see a dip in farming afterwards. If all things being equal, there's going to be some kind of dip. And that's going to hopefully return back to where it was. And you can see that if you look at the graph on uh, World War One, you can, you can see there's a little bit of a dip. Did you see the number of farms up there in the millions? It was like it's like about six million farms, something like that. Oh, there's that six million figure. And it dips a little bit after World War One. You see it spike all the way up to its height around 1935. And then after 1945, it goes off a cliff. Absolutely plummets from 1945 to about 1964. And there, there is no way to interpret that as being natural or some sort of technological innovation or driven by some kind of uh you know natural evolutionary change and what kind of technologies and efficiencies were capable of of doing the work of farming clearly something else was going on and i believe what it was is that in world war ii women were working in factories so they weren't really able to take care of the farms and when their husbands came back rather than deal with the farms that weren't really being maintained they also went into the factories. So there was a heavy level of industrialization. Everybody was moving into, into working in industry and the farms themselves were just sort of parceled off and balled up by increasingly larger and larger conglomerates. Well, yes, uh, we have a, in fact, there's a census graph in our show notes here, which show that sort of around 1920, the rural population leveled off just above 40%, and it even stayed above 40% through World War One. stayed above 40% into 1940. But then after 1940, it begins to creep down. You get below 40%. And after that, it falls off a cliff. Today, it's like 18.8%. So after almost three decades of steadiness, it fell apart. And one, one thing I was thinking about earlier was when you think about American involvement in World War One, it was only a year and a half. And it wasn't really a mass mobilization yeah. on the scale that World War II was, where, as you mentioned, all of the men left, all of the women went into factories. And when men came back, you had things like the GI Bill to get them into college, to get them into trades and careers. It basically pulled people off of all the land that they had also been forced to abandon while serving. Yep. Yep. And of and course, it, it, this this was a happy coincidence if you were trying to run a mega farm. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. All if you were at a big elite interest, well, hey, look, now you've got cheap far, farmland you can buy up. Yeah, it, it's amazing actually because you look at the on the graph on the article when it starts to decline, and the average farm size ticks up and up, and then sometime around sort of 1948, 1952, it just explodes all through the 70s and then levels off around 1975 but at a size basically double than pre-war average farm size while the number of farms dropped from almost 7 million to just about 2 yeah that the destruction of rural america in one graph basically <laughs> yeah yeah because it, re- it represents the, those people moving away, uh, the the land no longer being small family plots. Now it's just one enormous plot. So you're going to have less people living there, 
uh, smaller communities. And it's it's remarkable when I think, you know, when I look at the vision for America. So I, I put this uh, JSTOR link in here, which was an article about Thomas Jefferson by Whitney Griswold. And Jefferson sort of had this vision of America as a, spanning the entire North American continent with various sister republics that would be about 500 million what he called Anglo-Saxons, all living in these very small communities surrounded by vast stretches of farmland. And Jefferson is quoted as calling this a desirable social pattern. He didn't view it through an economic lens. He didn't view farming as, as a purely productive enterprise, but rather something that created a social environment that was desirable for a nation. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, I think it depends on your time horizons too. Like, uh, you, sure, you could model it economically and pursue things for short-term financial gain, but how is that going to play out over the course of several generations? Probably not going to work too well. And it appears that the Roman Empire is a good example of the many problems you'll run into if you do that. Now, in your research on the Roman Empire, what? Do, do you know what crops they were producing for economic value rather than sort of consumption? Well, the one thing that was mentioned was grain. Like grain was ended up being imported from other areas as as this process of farm consolidation went on. I I think they were, and I'll have to go back and look at this again, but I, I think that they were increasingly focused on stuff that was a little bit more luxury-oriented in terms of, of food production and stuff that would keep extremely well if you were transporting it over long distances so uh, at first glance it kind of looks like well they were they were making decisions that were maybe economically logical but maybe not so rational in other ways you know like if you think about like the small family farm right like generally what you would you would tend to have years and years ago is you'd have a, a a barn usually somebody would have a small tractor and they would have a fair amount of diversity right like you'd have cows chickens all of these things, and that that gave you a lot of redundancy, right? Like you, if you if you're if you had problems with like your eggs or something, well, your neighbor probably has plenty of extra, you know, that kind of thing. And that's all been sort of erased, and you you see these monocultures, and the same thing seemed to be happening in the Roman Empire, where they were in, increasingly focused on just growing like one kind of crop, as opposed to having that diversity. Yeah, this is actually, so in my personal notes, I found a study from 2019 by UC Berkeley, which shows that our simplified, they call it the simplified monoculture, you know, industrial model of agriculture, has completely wiped out redundancy and elasticity. They called it, they call the agricultural sector narrow and brittle. Mm -hmm. There's no diversity. Farmer, you know, your even your general family farmer only does one specific crop or only rotates two or three specific crops. This also reduces animal welfare. This also reduces biodiversity. It's actually fascinating. Uh, there was an, another article I found by the University of British Columbia talking about, you know, sort of everyone's favorite topic, which is the bees. The bees are disappearing. Well, one of the reasons bees are disappearing is it's not just sort of pesticides which is overblown it's because the the plant environments that they thrive in don't exist 
in huge expanses of monocultural agricultural yeah. land. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, because the, the, you've got just acres and acres and acres of just one monoculture, no trees, nothing but like soybeans. Like, how are you going to put a beehive out there? <laughs> how are you going to have anything out there except more soybeans? Right, nothing, nothing can live in the water because of runoff. Nothing can live in the dirt because you suck every nutrient out of it. Of when I was uh, in timber cutting when I was younger, and we would come across these uh, these planted pine patches, like white pine patches that have been commercially planted. Usually, they were they were planted way too close. We would call them pine deserts because there was nothing in there but pine trees. It was just a, a, a total desert of an ecosystem. It was one species, and then just whatever limited forms of, of wildlife, particularly like pine trees, and that was it. That's fascinating. We actually That actually exists here in Europe, too, where they, except it's more sort of restorative. They claim to be restoring land, but they, they plant one tree species as far as the eye can see, and it doesn't so- actually do anything. So this is one of the things that kind of blew my mind whenever I realized how it worked was the national forests are logged and they, the government essentially uses a lot of these national forests not for the purpose you would think, which is, well, let's let them grow and become old-growth timber again, but it's, it's just an economic reserve for them. And they will farm that, that, that timber. Oh, yeah, that's what almost, almost all federal land is just an economic reserve. Everything under Bureau of Land Management... Everything, almost everything under the Forest Service, it's all basically resource tiles that they lease mm-hmm. out. Because if you if you think about it, especially in the United States, like where is the actual old growth timber? Well, there basically isn't any. Like in terms no, of this, forest, is, yeah. this is actually a, a rather famous sort of topic among rural people in Michigan that the the whole sort of lower two-thirds of the state was complete, just logged to hell, just completely stripped of old-growth wood. In fact, there are pictures in the town hall where I grew up of men just pushing and bundling these huge trees into the river to float to float mm-hmm. them down river to Detroit. They completely just decimated uh, the timber areas of Michigan, and then anything that wasn't swamp, they planted it over with agriculture. Yeah, they did that where I live now, and they had a bad habit of using dynamite to try to clear out sections of the river, which ended up creating these nasty hydraulics that are kind of dangerous if you're in a boat. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that was the, the, the process where I lived was they initially went after the coal. When the coal became harder to acquire, they turned their attention on the timber. And all of this was just kind of like rapid exploitation. Uh, there, there were these little timber towns that would pop up, and they were temporary, like essentially like a timber encampment of sorts. It would be like a little village or town, and it would last only until they were done harvesting all the timber. And then these places would either fall apart or they would be uh, uh, fall under the purview of like a historical society that would maintain them. This parallels really well with with a note I made in the document uh, using both states. We grew up in Michigan for me and North Carolina for you, where the state governments actually spend money to tear down old blighted barns and silos and, and farmhouses rather mm-hmm. than investing in sustainable rural communities that actually create wealth. They just say, oh, well, well, we'll knock down the ugly stuff so that the people driving between cities don't have to see that decrepit silo. I actually like the old silos. You know, it is depressing. It's depressing to look at them. I do like silos. 
Uh, yeah, so do I. I, li- I like a really, I like a bar, and I love really nice. Yeah, that's looking my favorite bar. thing too. <laughs> at, at least human made. Yeah. I know, right? It, but it, God, it's just remarkable how they stripped so, in it. Oh, go ahead. So I guess back towards the, the the central thesis of this though is that there were policy decisions that they started making after World War II, and specifically what it was is they wanted to do what they call market-oriented farm policy. And this foreign policy was essentially trying to build a bigger export market. And every policy decision that they've made along that course has just destroyed small farming. Uh, It's gotten people over their head in debt. And then, of course, a large conglomeration comes along and scoops up whatever land someone eventually had to sell off at auction. But this was like, uh, this was the the butts thing of, of get big or get out. Which is still kind of the name of the game in in uh, American agriculture. And That's an actual quote from him, isn't it? Yeah. Get bigger, get out. He he just yeah. looked. I I think he was in front of a camera and he just said it. Mm-hmm. Yep, get big but, or get out. <laughs> which is ridiculous to say to a country, uh, where at the time still over thirty percent of people were living in in rural areas, and you still had millions and millions of farmers. Yeah, so there there was a specific policy or set of policies from 1970 to 1979. Um, at one point, there was essentially pretty cheap credit to get farm land, and people were taking advantage of that. And so you, you would see sort of a little mini boom in farming. And this ultimately culminated in an embargo against Russia and grain that kind of destroyed that market and tons of people just lost their shirts. This actually happened to my uncle who was running a fertilizer business. Because he he invested heavily in equipment while this was going on and then almost lost everything after the, the market was dealt a blow by that embargo, which is kind of interesting to think about in the context of the modern Ukrainian conflict, but there it is. And of course, as as always, like, well, who was the big winner? Uh, big agriculture and everybody else lost. It seems to be a theme with like all of these policy decisions that they've made. It, it always benefits the larger conglomerates, always damages the small rural communities. And it was amazing when they started doing when they started doing milk subsidies in the U.S. They subsidize you based on volume. So the bigger you are, the more of a subsidy you get. If you're a, if you're a small milk producer with only thirty cows, your subsidy is going to be about ten times smaller than a larger producer who has three hundred cows or thirteen hundred cows. And yeah. this led from from nineteen seventy to twenty seventeen, the number of dairy farms in America decreased from six hundred and fifty thousand to forty thousand seven hundred. And yeah. over t- and over two thousand are still closing a year. Now think about how many jobs and j- tax revenue, business, and families that that used to be out there in rural America doing this work that now they've been completely cut off from. For what for most of them was a multi generational industry. Well, and the other thing I think is very interesting politically is that conservatives and Republicans for a long time sort of proclaimed themselves as the, the friend of the small farmer while they were busy destroying farming the whole time. <laughs> like the, the farmer's best friend is over there destroying his entire way of life. And I think they were probably 
largely responsible for the idea that, oh, man, they're paying farmers not to grow stuff. And the thing was, like, back in the day, those those types of subsidies, they were they were usually engineered to try to keep prices stable in the domestic market. It, it was it served a purpose. Like it was something that actually was necessary. You did have to have market uh, interventions to keep everything stable. But as you can see over time, this was replaced by this ethic of, well, you know, uh, paying somebody not to grow something is is wrong, and we should just let them have battle it out in the free market. And if you <laughs> if your product becomes too cheap and you can't afford to to make a lifestyle off of, of growing it anymore, then I guess you're just uh, out of luck, pal. Well, yeah, this is, well, this is the whole point of the free global free markets is that countries are supposed to compete with each other. Mm-hmm. And then the countries which are most efficient, quote unquote, in an industry will be the country that retains that industry while it basically dies off everywhere else. And before America really sort of got into the, free trade insanity it did several things sometimes it would subsidize you not to grow on your land other times the government would set a price floor Mm -hmm. and it would say no matter what the price is we are always going to pay you you know 130 a bushel for your wheat and the government would literally buy up all of the excess wheat at that price and keep it in warehouses yeah they just they they would just store it in warehouses But then if a year later there was a huge decline in the wheat crop for some reason, all of that wheat would be released from the warehouses into the market to make sure that prices didn't jump for consumers. I mean, this this was a system that worked. It worked, but they were able to tap into this this uh, this appeal to like, oh, well, that's ridiculous. They're paying them not to grow a crop. Why would they do that? Silly. Or, oh, you, they're destroying this agricultural product. They're, they're just burning that stuff. Why are they doing that? It's like, because it's an intentional policy to maintain price stability so that that particular way of life doesn't just evaporate. Like, it, it serves a purpose. <laughs> oh, well, Alex, if it's not good for the free market, then it's not good for the country. <laughs> they, they, they wasted cream. I mean, I just, can you believe that? It's like yeah, we have, th- you, you wasted an entire way of life. Well, I think it, I think it was Ronald Reagan who he went after government cheese because at the st- at the time the U.S. government would still buy excess dairy to turn into cheese, and they mm-hmm. had huge warehouses of cheese. And Ronald Reagan was ma- he was massively butthurt about this. He right. just he I, I hated the idea, hated the idea that the state was intervening to keep afloat at the time hundreds of thousands of dairy farmers. And I, I didn't look into this specifically, but if it collapsed by over 610,000 farms, I have to imagine Ronald Reagan put a stop to that program. Yeah, and so now now we live in the aftermath of all of those policies, which have, as, as I think we said earlier, it's reduced the percentage of people engaged in farming to 2%. And now if you are operating a farm, the average age is going to be I mean, shit's probably up to about 60 by now, because the time I wrote this article was 57. When I, so I wrote a piece for white papers about eight months ago, 10 months ago, and I looked into two things. I looked into the average age of the farmer, and did they have an heir, someone to replace them? Mm -hmm. And in the Netherlands, the average age was like 47, and 40% of them had an heir, 
in America, the average age was just about to pass 60. And only so 12 per, only 12% of farmers had an heir to replace them in America. Yep. And the, the other thing is, and some people get a little upset about this, but uh, for the most part, if you're running a farm and you're not one of these massive conglomerates, like one of these corporate farms, you're going to be relying on off-farm income. Like you're going to have a corporate job and what you're essentially running is a vanity farm. Vanity farming is a thing now. That you, you have your, your corporate adult job so that you can then do your vanity farming on the weekend. Which is just amazing to me. In fact, there is a source in your article. <laughs> I think you said a glorified, you called it a glorified hobby. These people who are, who that's, spend their. Yeah, that's amazing to see the, essentially the building block of a civilization reduced to just being a hobby. Something that you do for kicks, for fun. Even though for, for most of human history, this has been the essential way that you, you actually build a human society is to have tons and tons of these small farmers. Like that's, that's the, the brick and mortar right there. In the data, sh and the amazing thing is, it, it, you know, people often have this misconception that it was technology and technological advancement that drove people off the land. But the Industrial Revolution started in the 1760s, 1780s, and sort of rolled on, building up steam all the way into the 1890s, right? So the Industrial Revolution is going on that whole time. But even throughout that whole period, the borough population is getting bigger. Your number of farmers is getting bigger. I mean, hell, it, it peaked in America at just shy of 8 million in, you know, 1936-37, right? So, mm -hmm. no, agricultural, agri you know, technological advancement didn't drive these people off the land. And I've, I've said to you before, why would it? Why would a tractor shut down a farm? Like this doesn't it doesn't make sense. It, it's well, you know, a tractor it's, now. I guess it's time to give up farming. Right. It, it's it's sort of. A, I have a, a pickup theory. truck. I, why should I farm? <laughs> right. It's, it's a broken concept, but it's something that I hear people say all of the time. It's just, and that's the other crazy thing to look at. You you look at the uh, small small tractors were available to farmers. They were sold to them at a price they could afford. Everybody had a small tractor. These things were insanely reliable. That run for decade after decade after decade. Uh, pickup trucks. They would market them pickup trucks for carrying produce and things like that to the market. Uh, those those were very affordable utilitarian vehicles. Now pickup truck costs you close to a hundred thousand dollars in some cases. They're now essentially luxury items. Uh, so, and then oh my God, the price of a tractor, like in like the the, the modern tractor, it's insane. It costs John, far more than a house. John Deere, John Deere. Uh, so many farmers can't afford them now that so many, so few farmers can afford them now that John Deere actually has like a rental program. You can rent them yeah. because no one can afford them. At this rate, you're you're going to find yourself back to using draft horses. <laughs> you're for, for pulling, pulling pulling the plow with the sedan. Yeah. Oh, yeah, pull 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 the plow with your uh, ninety thousand dollar pickup truck. Try that. Oh yeah, yeah. No no one owns sedans in America anymore. I I definitely <laughs> misspoke there. And you know I I think it's I mean, key for people. Now is that a technological outcome that a farmer would find themselves in a situation where they can't afford a tractor? 
there is there's that due to some sort of financial system that is being run by people who are frankly hostile to farmers oh it's absolutely it's 100 percent financialization there's actually a fascinating so in 2007 there was a horrible global <laughs> there was a global food crisis now it didn't affect the west but in parts of africa and then it, at the time very poor parts of asia there was a serious food crisis they couldn't afford to buy food on the market and this is because companies like goldman sachs and blackrock have huge commodity trading funds where they bu- they literally buy up agricultural products and they were holding them in warehouses i mean so imagine literal warehouses full of actual food now wait a minute that's i mean that that's it's not like they were doing government cheese or anything right I mean, yeah uh, that's but, the free market making a decision there. If the market has spoken, the food will stay in the warehouse. Yep. So they're decision. they're 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 hodling they're hodling this food while people are starving and prices are going up. Now, mind you, prices aren't going up for farmers because these companies are buying this. They're buying these food on com, this food on commodities exchanges. Right. Right. Brokers and it's, it's, are, it's, yeah, as we established earlier, they've got contracts stipulating exactly how much you're going to get right, paid. Right, exactly. So, so no matter how much the price of the food is going up in the warehouse, the farmer is not getting any more, any more cent on the dollar for this. But they're holding it in the warehouses, and it literally contributed to a famine because they waited until prices got as high as they possibly could before actually selling this food, and multiple countries couldn't afford it anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, this is this is something, of course, that I, I know Mike has, has said this kind of phrase many times. Is someone is going to be making decisions about how the market is engineered because there is no free market; it doesn't exist. Someone is going to make a policy decision regarding how the market market operates. It is always a top-down system. It's oh, yeah, always all, some all form market. of <laughs> all always markets command are, economy. All markets are constructed. It just depends on yeah. how you construct. Yeah, they're always some kind of command economy. And in this case, it's like, okay, well, is it somehow better to have Goldman Sachs? in charge of why things are stockpiled in this case so that they can stuff their own pockets. How is that better than a government deciding they're going to stockpile stuff just to support prices for their farming population and to make sure that they have a reserve in case there's a shortage next year? One of these two things sounds like it's reasonable and the other is just uh, reckless profiteering. Oh, but Alex, we can't spend tax tax dollars for the difference here. We can't spend tax dollars. Yeah, right. It's morally wrong to do that. Yeah, exactly. BlackRock uses private equity to starve people. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm like, but the systems that BlackRock uses to move around and these things they're speculating on, those are all funded by tax dollars. Like, you're using public highway infrastructure. That's tax dollar derived. I don't know. I I digress. Uh, Yeah, but it's significant, though. Because there was another, in that same report, there was another fascinating link they gave. And I don't remember the title of the study, but I have the link in front of me in the notes. Where the food price index, which is, you know, the indices that tra- that tracks how these commodities are exchanged, rose by 125% between 2002 and 2008, which was immediately after they sort of deregulated the market in the 1990s. So... Literally tens of billions of dollars flooded into these market exchanges for agricultural products 
purely for speculative purposes. They're not actually facilitating the production of, of you know, food and refined goods. They're just speculating on prices. But you, had, this, some, you had some stuff in your prep that talks about the amount of money that a farmer is paid for like a particular item versus how right, much that, it ultimately sells for, and it's staggering. Yes, the data from the national the National Farmers Union. How so? For every dollar that's out, every dollar that's spent on food, eighty cents of that dollar goes to processing, wholesaling, distribution, and retail. Fourteen point three cents actually goes to the farmer. Now, what is what is significant here is that when you look at a company like Tyson, you know, chicken nuggets. All, all of that stuff, they, what do they do? They market it, they process it, they wholesale it, they distribute it, and they retail it. Well, they don't read it. Grocery stores retail it. But they have control over basically the entire process, process except for literally caring for the chickens. Cargill does this with beef. Monsanto, now a buyer, does this with seeds and any kind of seed-related product. These companies are getting basically the entire 80 cents of that supply chain, while the farmer is getting 14.3 cents on the dollar. Yeah, it would so be there's, yeah, it there's would be, money to be made here. Farmers just aren't making it. It would be fascinating to contrast that with how much they were probably getting paid on the dollar, I don't know, 7,500 years ago. Now, I, I did try to find data on that, and I couldn't find very good specific data. However... There is data on farmers who sell stuff at market still, even if you go to your local farmer's market with your product. Yeah. They, tend, they tend to make double what they can through contracts with corporations. Give or yeah. take what, you know, how you have to process it. But yeah, it can yeah. and that, be 30-plus that, that, cents. Yeah. That's, that's them even in a situation where they're having to compete with these, these uh, companies that are selling stuff at Walmart. So they're, they're doing surprisingly good by that metric. Indeed. Now, you know, it, it made me think of where I grew up, they grow a lot of sugar beets. <laughs> in fact, I grew, I grew up in a town with a sugar beet processing plant to make sugar. And as a result, I, am, I can s stand some really bad smells because mm -hmm. the, the smell of rotting sugar beet was just reality for me. But the point is, this sugar beet refining facility and the distribution is actually owned by the collective of farmers who grow these sugar beets and they're all really rich now i'm not saying you know they're not driving around in teslas but they're comfortable they have investments they're not poor everyone who grew corn or you know any farmer growing corn around there was poor and there's some fascinating data from the national farmers union you know how a boneless ham at the supermarket will retail for about $13, what do farmers get? 83 cents. A head of lettuce sells for two forty nine. The farmers get 26 cents. Yeah, and it's just it's amazing just how... Squeezing the what few farmers remain for the, the, the tiniest amount of, of marginal gain. So that's kind of the other thing. It's like these, a lot of these farmers are not necessarily rich. You know, they're not like Silicon Valley CEOs. No, but the but there is money to be made there. The system is just specifically designed to ensure they can't make it. They don't have access to that other eighty cents. 
Mm-hmm. There's no yeah. way for them to access that other 80 cents unless they take it upon themselves to sort of try to find it, the time to go to the local market. It, it would have been possible to if it exists that would have created a completely different outcome that would have made uh, that way of life sustainable. And it looks to me, I mean, as, as you were saying, that uh, Goldman Sachs essentially created a, a, a fucking <laughs> situation where people were starving to death. Uh, it seems to me that it's it's better to to have have the older system where you've got a large network of smaller farms. You, you don't have all of your eggs in one basket, so to speak. And you also don't have them underneath the thumb of some sort of financial industry that's just trying to make a quick buck. Well, what was amazing to me, there was an example in one of these articles about how uh, a Cargill, you know, a, a JBS-owned chicken processing facility in Missouri might ship chickens eight hours from Virginia to process them mm-hmm. because, you know, some some marginal factor has made them 10 cents cheaper to whole to, to buy from the farm to buy from a wholesaler while chickens while chickens yeah. in Missouri get shipped to Texas for like there's no these supply chains aren't local they're not sensical they're based on these really marginal mm-hmm. you know couple of cents yeah, systems that's, that's like the global uh, supply chain in general it's shipping things right. all over the planet multiple times just to save a cent here or a cent over there and in, in, in doing so, you completely, <laughs> you completely deconstruct a local, several local communities. You do, you do that, and then you increase your vulnerabilities. Like, okay, so you're, you're shipping livestock all over the place. What's, what's going to happen if uh, they have some kind of disease? Well, thanks. Now you've seeded it all over the country. Um, and then there's, there's always, like, these hidden subsidies that they are taking advantage of, like using the highway system to truck chickens up and down the road. Well, we saw this. We saw this vulnerability just last year when that uh, the plant that manufactured baby formula went offline in Michigan. Yeah, that's right. Because yeah. America, America has only like two of these plants in a country of three hundred and thirty-four million people. It, it, it's just it's just staggering how sort of system efficiency got in the way of what would be sort of. Nat, uh, or a philosophy of national planning, I should say. Yeah. Um, to answer one of those earlier questions about Rome, it looks like what they had been doing was uh, converting Italian land into vineyards to a large extent. So they were. Oh, geez. They were so lux- they were producing luxury products. Yeah, it's like, okay, so you've got plenty of, of wine to drink, but your grain isn't made here anymore. Now you've got to import it from somewhere else. <laughs> anyway, yeah, you can see kind of, it's that kind of stuff in the United States. Well, this, this reminds me about how America imports all of these avocados from Mexico. Most American avocados come from Mexico. So you've, you are now importing luxury products instead of focusing on you know sort of coherent national food chains yeah it's 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 just remarkable how we we've deconstructed this and you actually say at the end of the article uh bad short-sighted policies in the name of greed produces these structural changes and they can absolutely be undone or reversed now i agree with that in principle but 
the, the actual task of doing that would be monumental. At this stage, you would, it would be huge. It would be huge to try to go back to tradition, so to speak, just because it's the, the problem has been existing for so long now. I mean, like, like I was saying earlier, like, how would you even find people that are suited to doing that kind of work that aren't just cargo culting like a vanity farm or something? I mean, you'd have to you'd basically have to introduce young people. You'd have to do some sort of national program of introducing young people to the land. I mean, it would be a massive, massive undertaking. And we kind of touched on this in our in our first discussion, sort of how the <laughs> how the the system created by neoliberalism in general has sort of created all of these head fakes and we've sort of head faked ourselves into believing that concentration in sort of suburbs and urban belts is a sustainable model for a nation state. I mean, they're creating like the actual dystopia that they used to parody in the 1980s, like the mega city <laughs> one kind of thing. They're creating, yeah, exactly. Creating the thing from Blade Runner where you've got like these huge expanses of farmland tended to by like a, a genetically engineered replicant while everybody else is crowded into a little hive city. And, you know, I think it's I think it's sort of prescient to say at this stage that I I'm not glorifying rural life to make it sound like it's fantastic. Alex, I know you would agree with me, having grown up really rural as well. It's it can it can be really difficult. It can be a bit soul crushing at times. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sort of people have a tendency to romanticize it. But that doesn't change the fact that if you don't have these communities and you don't have these systems and you don't have the wealth generation and not to mention the <laughs> the, the fertility that comes along with having these these small rural communities, you don't have a foundation for a society. Yeah, this this is ultimately what happened to Rome to an extent is that they, they their birth rates also started to go into the toilet. Uh, they were losing their agrarian population, and they increasingly had to rely on foreign mercenaries. Just oh wow, that sounds familiar. You end well, up. Yeah, I mean, who was? Yeah, who, who's then, the warrior class of the United States? Southern. Well, it was Southern men. Right. Right, and if you don't have them, you're going to have to import more foreigners, which is going to continue to destabilize your country. There, there will be political consequences for that, even if you don't see them in the short run. In the long run, it's definitely going to have problems. And I, I, we're starting to get into the stage of problems, I would say. I would say so, yeah. <laughs> I, think we're, I think we're about there. Because, yeah, I mean, there's, yeah. there, there's a whole other thing you could do about uh, NAFTA and American economic policy, having adverse uh, reactions in other countries and ultimately making people there poor and causing them to end up trying to flee and come to the United States. Like NAFTA was absolutely one of the reasons that we got all of that, that Me Mexican flight, like in the late nineties, early two thousands. Oh yeah. Well, we inter we, we introduced them, essentially introduced them to a slice of a material way of life that they just, they just had to have. And we, we crushed them agriculturally. Oh yeah, that's well. That's another thing is when you look at a GATT, the general, it's like the Global Trade Treaty that basically every country signs. The entire West has a massive monopoly where most other countries are not allowed to do any sort of 
substantial agricultural policymaking, especially in the way of subsidies. And then you get like the, like the United States that massively subsidizes monocultural grain production and then exports it all over the world, mm-hmm. crushing, absolutely crushing the agricultural sectors of small countries. Yeah, which conveniently, uh, like in the case of Mexico, you destroy their farming economy. Now they don't have jobs, so where are they going? Oh, they're going to the United States. And hey, look, now you've got you've got uh, fresh workers to to put into your factories and other places. I mean, it's just really yeah. monst- yeah. monstrous strategy. Oh, well. I could go. I could go on all day about the evils of neoliberalism and just the, <laughs> the sort of global hellscape that we've managed to create. Yeah, because you, you you do things that are bad for your own people, and then everybody else's people, and then it just makes it worse. Well, but we have to find we have to find the efficiencies, Alex. All right, the efficiencies are incredibly important here. So we've got to ship chickens from one coast to the other before we process them. <laughs> <laughs> or your blue jeans they've got to go to 15 different countries before they're before they finished making the blue jean the, su- yeah, the supply chain has to go yeah, i mean i don't know if you've ever looked into that but it is it is wild how many places an item will actually go before it is finished before they've completed the production of the item well i can believe it i'm sure i'm sure we're talking vietnam singapore hong kong japan america i mean i can believe it yeah, and then the people want to talk about uh, environmental pollution, and it's like, okay, well, what are these cargo ships that are <laughs> crisscrossing the globe all the time? Oh, it's it, that's a whole other thing we could go into. The other thing, it, you know, sort of speaking about the destruction of of sort of the traditional American lifestyle. Another show that we want to do in the future, sort of as we wrap this one up, we want to tackle suburbs and the myth of the suburbs. I think that'll be a really good one in the future, sort of how. It was it, it's been it artificially created aspirational lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, because I, I think some people think that it was uh, predominantly driven by something like white flight, and that doesn't really seem to be the case. Right. Uh, they they think that they think that white flight was the cause of the development of the suburb, but in fact, the suburb, you know, Levittown was what the 1970s. I mean, it was it was well after the Second Great Migration. You know, I hadn't really looked too much into the timeline on it. I just know that suburbia seems to appear everywhere regardless of the racial composition. Yeah, Levittown was the... Hold on, now I'm curious. I have to look it up live on the... 1960. 1960. But that's still well after the, the Second Great Migration. Yeah. Well, that'll be that'll be a, a show in the future. Sort of, I imagine us kind of doing a series on uh, on deconstructing yeah, the aspirationalisms of America. My plan initially had been to discuss the American farmer and how he was destroyed, and then talk about the working class because the the working class is now in the same sort of the same position as the farmer was. Like they're in steep decline, and they're rapidly reaching the point where they are a small minority, and they they had their time in the sun, but it was. It seems to have been much briefer, I think, than a lot of people realize. Oh, it was only it was only forty years, basically, mm-hmm. Six, sixty if you're generous. Yeah, yeah. While while the literally at the same time that the farmers were being completely decimated, that was whenever you could see the the working class lifestyle actually being something that you could make a life out of. And, right, and it did work. I mean, it, they were they were people who d- generally managed to have two or three kids and a mm-hmm. 
uh, you know, that two car income as it was known. And by the 1970s, that was beginning to be deconstructed as well. Yeah, it's always the same story. It it, it absolutely is. And, and speaking of, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, and it's it's always driven by policy. It's not like the people wanted this. It's not like there was some sort of natural technological evolution that led to it or is inedible. It's always a policy decision, and usually these policy decisions are driven by a small number of financially minded people. Yes, exactly, and and that's really what I want to drive home with a lot of what we talk about in this episode and future episodes is that policy decisions are overwhelmingly what leads us here. It is when society evolves, policy decisions have to be made, and the ones that have been made just (laughs) aren't to our benefit. Yeah, and those decisions should be aimed towards resiliency, making something robust, and they're just not. Absolutely not. They're 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 designed for efficiency, streamlining, profits, profits. Yes. At the end of the day, it's BlackRock's bottom line. Yeah, and I'm not going to like go out on a limb and predict some sort of massive social catastrophe is looming because we have catabolized all the farming class. But right, I don't cert- think that's the point either. It certainly does make things more fragile in ways that I think are becoming somewhat obvious every once in a while, uh, especially like looking at the, the disruptions from COVID kind of really highlighted the limitations of the system. I was amazed. You Actually, that's a great point because you had, you know, farmers were literally burying hundreds of millions of metric tons of potatoes, for example, mm-hmm. because they will only grow potatoes. I remember watching a YouTube video about a farmer out in, pretty sure it was Idaho, and they only did like potatoes from a spud of a certain maturity. And that was all they did. Their farm, you know, they didn't have any sort of diversity because they went get bigger, get out on potatoes. Yeah. And you got to make the decision to see it as an investment to, to make something that's more robust, have more diversity. I mean, who gives a fuck about the efficiency? Oh, yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that is a, a fantastic note to wrap up the second episode. Yep, because we're going to keep it to an hour. I know. I I got actually got a lot of compliments from people who were very happy to see that it was an only an hour long show. So we're going to doggedly keep it to an hour long show. We're going to keep it to an hour, and if we keep doing that, then Sven is going to come on here. I someone made that joke earlier. They said Sven is going to notice. <laughs> it's going to be like I want to be hired to be on this show. <laughs> I want I want to have the air horn go off when we hit an hour. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Oh, be in the middle of whatever point, we'll never get back to it. We'll have to uh, we'll have to prepare uh, we'll have to prepare something on music. Good lord! I'll sleep through that one. <laughs> All right, everyone. Bye bye. <laughs>